Great stories, epic songs, Podplays. If you enjoy the new and original music you discover in Podplays, be sure to stream or download these songs anywhere you currently get your music. Simply search the artist name Podplays, and please remember to like, follow, and share with all your friends. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick second and tell you that if you want to be a fly on the wall in conversations you probably wouldn't be able to listen to otherwise, you really need to subscribe to the Marty Ray Project Chats podcast. Marty Ray and Chris Wallen chat with some of the most interesting people in entertainment, from Burt Kreischer and Vanilla to Faison Love, DDP, Dina Carter, Herb Dean. They chat with some really interesting people. This show is like potato chips. I guarantee you, you can't just listen to one. Subscribe, download, rate, and review the Marty Ray Project Chats wherever podcasts are heard. Welcome to the pod play entitled Last Flag on Oak Island. Adapted from the screenplay written by J.R. Jordan Baines. A pinpoint of light shines on a metal wall lining an eight foot wide borehole. There in the darkness, Saul Clemens, mid fifties, a hard, rough man is dangling by a safety harness on a twisting cable. He wears a hard hat with a headlamp and an audio headset. An industrial hose running down the wall quivers from a powerful force of water pumping. Saul braces a hand against the trembling wall and shines his headlamp down into the inky darkness. The water, almost 60 feet below, is barely visible. Turning, he shines a flashlight on the metal casing at his side and rubs his glove on the surface rust. Is Larson there yet? If he shows up, tell him he's the worst engineer I've seen in 30 years. A patch of rusty metal breaks loose and falls, crashing into the water below. Is Miles back yet? When Saul looks down, his headlamp beam dissolves into watery rings, trembling in the semi-darkness below. Dang. The water below boils up, rising fast. Saul's light beam focuses on the volcano of water rushing at him, and he grabs for his mic. Hey, up! Bring me up now! He desperately climbs the cable as it whisks him up. It's the summer of 1995 in Nova Scotia, Canada. Just off the coast lies Oak Island. The Clemens treasure hunting operation is in full swing. Borehole 12B is in the main shaft, surrounded by a wooden platform over the opening. The drilling rig sits to one side. Wooden and metal scaffolding hang over the hole, holding the winch. Two workmen are peering down into the hole as the winch winds, preparing for Saul's emergency exit. Come on! Get up here quick, Saul! We got you! Saul appears at the borehole top and scrambles out with the workman's help. A gusher of water chases after him. He untangles from his harness, irate and wet from his knees down. He tosses off his headset and hard hat. Where the heck is Larson? The Mahone Bay site is piled up with 30 years worth of equipment from drilling rig to defunct railroad tank cars and twisted eight foot ID steel pipes scattered nearby. There are compressors, water and mud pumps. A mobile home trailer serves as the company headquarters. The workmen gesture helplessly, but Saul stalks right past them, slamming into the office, not even a thank you. A thousand miles away, it's a beautiful day in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Dr. Carlos Sheldon, curator, is busy at his desk. His office is in a typical turn-of-the-century style, tucked in the second-floor suites of the Carnegie Museum of Antiquities. 
He is wearing thin, gold-brimmed glasses and wiping them clean as he sorts through a stack of mail to read. Across the room, Lauren Gates, a 22-year-old student assistant, sits at a small, mahogany desk. She is studying a postcard with a lighthouse on it. Smiling, she keeps flipping the card over and over, reading both sides. What are your plans for the summer, Lauren? She holds up the postcard with the lighthouse on it. The Oak Island, Dr. Sheldon, I mean, Carlos. Oh, just on call for the museum, a paper to research. She waves the postcard and smiles brightly at Dr. Sheldon with a hopeful look. From my childhood friend, Rudy Maddock. He's the Oak Island lighthouse keeper. Oh, lighthouse keeper. He asked me to take a look at something. I need an extra set of eyes on this and a bit of legwork. And it may need some, shall we say, creative thought. Most likely a simple translation. That's all? It's an American Revolutionary War relic. Packed sensibly, we leave this afternoon. Surprised, she nods and quickly rereads the postcard, searching for more details. Just four hours later, Carlos and Lauren sit in adjoining seats on a small commercial plane. In the seat back pocket in front of her is an in-flight magazine with the words, Turns 200 visible. She pulls the glossy book out to get a better look at the full headline that reads, Money Pit Treasure Hunt Turns 200. On the cover is a polished up photo of Saul Clemens at his desk, looking studious. Lauren glances to Carlos. Curiously, he leans back in his seat and closes his eyes. Not Lauren. She's wide awake, so she opens the magazine and begins to read. Back at Mahone Bay, fishing and tour boats are docked alongside each other, standing out in the sunshine next to where his boat, Second Wind, is tied up. Captain Louis Maruso is waiting. Maruso is 30 known to be wise for his years and very seaworthy. At the far end of the docks, Carlos and Lauren appear in the port traffic with their luggage, searching the area. Maruso sees them and waves them over. When Carlos waves back, Maruso walks briskly down the dock to meet them. Welcome aboard, Doctor. Lauren. Thank you, Captain. You know Lauren? Lauren, Captain Maruso of the Second Wind. Hello, it's a pleasure. Maruso grabs their luggage and nods for them to follow him. They walk to the second wind. Maruso boards first, then Carlos and Lauren. When everyone is safely aboard, the captain pulls up the bow line. Settled in, off we go. With a skillful hand, the captain steers the second wind out to sea as the view of the dock slips away behind them. Lorne looks at the causeway, then to Oak Island and to Carlos. The second wind motors to the island, around the eastern side to the lighthouse with a cottage nearby. They pull in at the small dock a few acres away, near a waiting jeep. Maruso ties up the second wind, then helps Carlos and Lauren out and puts their luggage in the waiting second-hand jeep. After everyone is stuffed in, Maruso shifts it into drive and heads for the sun-faded cottage they had seen from the boat. He pulls up to the small two-story cottage and parks. The lighthouse is 150 feet away with just a small elm tree nearby. Everyone climbs out as the front door opens. Rudy Maddock. A little windswept, but friendly looking, steps out and throws a welcome grin at Carlos. Good to see you, Carlos. Thank you, Captain Marusa. Lauren gets out of the Jeep and grabs her things as Maruso reaches for her door. He tries to take her bags from her. Rudy, you look well, my friend. You're making it look bad. I am, sorry. Carlos and Rudy warmly greet each other like old friends do while Lauren and Maruso walk briskly to the porch, not speaking. Once there, they all step inside. 
The cottage is small with tight spaces, but there's a cozy sitting room off the kitchen. Rudy, Carlos, Lauren, and Maruso pass through it single file. In the kitchen, Rudy gestures to the table as Maruso leaves their bags in the front room. They all sit down at a worn pine table. In the center of it stands a mason jar full of wildflowers someone has just gathered. The room has a 1940s look with some updates but very bachelor. Rudy squeezes around their chairs as he serves each guest a cool glass of homemade iced tea. The 200th anniversary has led to a ride of attention. That's why I enlisted Captain Maruso. Tea? We need ready, trusty transportation. Already, Clemens is suspicious. Where is it? Rudy closes the window and curtains over the sink and sits down at the table. Phew, safe. My nephew got the map in Sussex at the Briall estate sale about six months ago. They were a prominent British family but lost credibility with the Crown around 1780. Admiral Claude Briall somehow lost or stole a payroll meant for troops in Virginia during the American Revolution. According to the family, Admiral Brielle was attacked by privateers and the bankroll stolen. How much? Well, guessed at a little over two million pounds. No one believed his story of privateers. The ship's log placed Brielle's ship, the Lady Grey, off the coast of what's now Black Island Sound at the time of the attack. She was taking the payroll to Virginia, part pay and part bribe during the war. Never should have been that far north. Do you have the ship's log? We have Brielle's personal account of the war, written by his own hand. We'll run the proper tests, of course. Debatable now is if Brielle did bury anything on Oak Island. The time frame and amount are right. But do you think it has something to do with this island? In 1803, a stone was found in the pit with a coded inscription. It was deciphered by a computer cryptologist as reading 40 feet below 2 million pounds are buried. That's where the amount 2 million comes from. The journal has a similar code. Rudy stands, gets a paper from the sitting room secretary desk, sits at the table, and slides the paper to Carlos. That's a copy of the original inscription. The rock itself has long since disappeared. Brielle's ship log was in modern English, but his journal is in old text. On a piece of paper is a copy of an inscription on a stone dated 1803. Lauren looks at the paper, then to Maruso and Rudy, then to Carlos. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a treasure hunt?
was a blue diamond Oh, they proved to you, baby It's a big blue diamond Would you climb on that rocket ship and go? On the other side of the island, at the Clemens headquarters, there is a messy office desk, filing cabinet, and walls plastered with island and drilling operation maps. Tables are piled high with old charts. A bony plant, once an ornamental tree, is dying near the wall. Saul, cleaned up, sits at his desk studying a map spread on the top. The door swings open, and Miles Clemens, 24, and Saul's only son strides into the room. He's a scruffy blonde tough guy type, but he only looks older than his years. He has a large envelope in his hand. Saul glances at Miles, then looks down at the map. You get the report, Miles? No, the guides told me what happened. He drops the envelope on the desk. You all right, Pop? Saul nods, opens the envelope, withdraws a report, and studies it. Yeah, but Larson's fired the drunk. Well, how bad is it? Saul flips through the report, reads silently, then studies the last page. About 15 meters squeezed shut. We can pump it out, jack it open, and weld enough new plate in by the end of the week. He tosses the report to Miles' side of the desk. So Rudy has company, Americans. Maruso's girl and her old man, according to the doc gossips. That's what we're supposed to think. Miles shrugs, takes the report, thumbs to the last page, and reads silently and frowns. Look, you said watch Rudy, and that's what I seen. Maybe they are just company. And maybe they're not. He's been getting a lot of mail from a Pennsylvania museum. Does that sound like our light keeper? He's got something, a map. Museums don't really cater much to Blackbeard stories, Pop. When Saul gives him a steely glare, Miles runs a hand through his hair, looking like he wants to pull it out in frustration. Okay, well, what do you want me to do? Charter a fishing trip on the second wind? Ask Rudy for a tour of the lighthouse? Saul opens a worn cigar box, takes out a cigar. I was thinking about the girl. What if she really is Maruso's old girlfriend? Saul bites off the cigar end and spits it into the planter. Up here with a museum rep. Think about it, Miles. And remember, half this operation is your baby. Over at the cottage, Rudy, Carlos, Lauren, and Maruso eat salmagundi at the Little Pine kitchen table. You showed no one? Not till you said to get a skipper. Captain here knows. Saw Clemens' operation is organized, but the main concern is the treasure, not the search. We can guarantee a scientific study. When everyone finishes eating, Carlos takes out a pipe. Rudy slides an ashtray to him. So he's just one of the operations? One of two. Both are big. Why two? There's only one real location, right? Lots of holes on this island. No one takes Lucy Yearbright's operation lightly, especially Saul. Her operation's guarded day and night by armed men. Rudy stands and exits into the sitting room to answer the front door. Well, hello, Miles. Hey, Rudy. The group exchange looks when Rudy enters with Miles. Maruso is slightly annoyed. This is a friend of mine, Carlos Mead, and his daughter, Lauren. Lauren shoots a questioning look at Carlos when she is called his daughter. You know Captain Maruso, I suppose. Miles nods to Maruso. This is Miles Clements. His father runs one of the money pit digs. Half grinning, Miles shakes Carlos's hand and grabs a chair from the sitting room, pulling it up to the table. Rudy sits down too. Carlos, glad to meet you. You up uh, for the anniversary? Not particularly, but it sounds like quite an event. It is. Good tourism money too. I couldn't help notice uh, you had some company on the island. 
Miles doesn't go to the mainland much. I can give you a tour of our operation tomorrow, if you don't have any plans. Pick you up around 10. Dad, you need me in the morning? No, go ahead. Enjoy yourself. 10 o'clock is fine. That's perfect. Well, I gotta get back. Just thought I'd be neighborly. See you tomorrow, Lauren. Miles exits through the sitting room. Lauren looks to Carlos. I'll make sure he's really leaving. Rudy goes out the kitchen back door. Saul probably thinks you'll be an easy path to any information. Of course, you know how to keep quiet. Maruso, what do you know about Miles? Not much to know. His pop runs the second largest operation on the island. He knows as much as Saul himself, but he won't say anything of any real importance. It'll be a token tour, rehashing touristy info. But he will try to find out why you're here. Not a very trusting lot. She won't be in any danger, will she? Not from Miles. Rudy appears from the sitting room with an old shoebox. He places it on the table and sits down. Who knows he hired you? No one exactly. We needed a reason for him to be coming to the lighthouse, so we made up stuff about him and Lauren. Now wait a minute. Nothing torrid. Rudy just mentioned to a few of the local gossips we were once involved. You can work out the details later. Let's take a look at this before it turns to dust. Carlos takes the lid off the box and carefully lifts out a worn leather journal circa 1770 and lays it on the pine table. Meanwhile, on the other side of Oak Island, near Borehole 12B. Two workmen discharge hoses into a small nearby pond. Miles is showing Lauren around the operation. So, scheduled tours are planned, but from a distance. I'm lucky to be so close. I didn't know how long you were staying since you're just visiting. I, I guess I just wanted to meet you. Well, I'm flattered. He points out parts of the drilling rig and pantomimes as they are walking over to the Clemens office. He removes his hard hat and gestures to a chair for Lauren. Uh, have a seat. God, everything here is so big and dangerous. She sits down in one of a pair of slightly dingy armchairs, but Miles slips in to sit behind Saul's desk. We're pumping out water from a recent collapse. He spreads a map of the island out on the desk and points at it. See this map? This is an aerial view of the island. Smith's Cove, South Shore Cove, the original pit site, in our operation. You're not drilling in the original site? No, Yearbright has it. We had it, but our lease expired, so Lucy took over. Then why dig here at all? Well, how much do you know about the pit? Well, the brochures say a teen boy named Daniel McGinnis and two friends rode out to investigate the island in 1795, I think it was. They found a depression by a tree with broken ship tackle and they dug it up, thinking of pirate treasure, but this is way more than three teens with shovels. It is. He points to the map's two blue lines. See these two blue lines? These are flood tunnels that keep the original pit filled with water. Sort of a booby trap for anyone trying to retrieve the chests. It's impossible to pump all the water out from the tunnels, although Lucy's trying to, which means there must be another way to get the treasure out. He lays a transparency over the map showing past digging operation sites. Now, if you look at this, lots of people work the area, so much that the chests aren't in the pit anymore. The flooding from Smith's Cove is strong, emptying about 2,000 liters per minute. Forced through a space the size of that tunnel, the pressure is strong enough to push a large weight quite a distance. We know we're in the right spot now. So any treasure might not even be in its original location? He nods in agreement. Mm-hmm. Also, Blackbeard had another weight. The pirate Blackbeard? I mean, it's his long-lost treasure. Other pirate captains had thrown in with him, but Blackbeard would have carried out the operation. He opens a book on Blackbeard and shows a page with Captain Blackbeard. Papa and I think the pit was either dug as a distraction, nothing was ever hid there, or if it was, it has been pushed south by the flooding. That's our strongest theory. He points at a blue line on the map. See this blue line? It's probably about here, in the South Shore Tunnel. Wouldn't the water pressure there keep it from moving? 
Mm, no, not compared to the force from Smith's Cove. And if Blackbeard didn't bury it in the pit at all, do you have a map? He closes the book, studies her. No, do you? Me? I don't even believe in this pirate treasure theory. Why is Rudy Maddox so interested in the pit? He barely gave it a second look till a few months ago. What's your dad really doing here? I didn't know Rudy was so interested. Dad hasn't seen him in, in years. They aren't young anymore, you know? And that's why you invited me here? You didn't even want to meet me. Lauren stands and walks abruptly to the door, but Miles steps in front of her. Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry, Lauren. That's not why I asked you here, honest. I'm just so used to people coming to the island only for the pit. Rudy gives tours of the light too. It's the only kept light around since Country Island went auto. I know, I know. Let me make amends. Let me take you out to dinner tonight. I have plans for dinner. With Captain Maruso. Kinda got around that you two were together a few years ago. He's been hanging around Rudy's also. He moves to open the door for her. As they step outside into the bright sunshine. Well, how about lunch Saturday? It's lunchtime the next day. Carlos and Lauren sit dutifully at the pine table with half-filled cups of coffee and serious looks on their faces. He translates the journal as she takes notes. The Admiral complains of his ship and the paltry provisions. He even says how privateering would be more profitable than sailing for the Crown. Jonathan Stewart, a Royal British Engineer aboard, shares this view. Miles asked me out for dinner tonight, and I told him I had plans. He assumed they were with Captain Maruso. I can get along without you tonight. Get the samples ready and send them off. I want the test results ASAP. I will do them now. Carlos slides the journal to her. Lauren takes a white cloth from her tote beneath the table and spreads it on the tabletop. She sets the journal on the cloth. Dawn's white cotton inspection gloves and uses a pair of scissors to carefully snip a small patch from the journal's leather cover. She places this in a small plastic bag, seals and labels it. She finds an inconsequential page inside the journal and copies the few ink letters into her notes and labels the location of them from the journal. She then cuts a small sample from a journal page with ink, puts it in another plastic bag, and seals and labels it. Make sure the lab knows we're under a tight deadline. I'll catch up on your notes. She removes her gloves and puts the scissors and samples into her tote, takes his notebook and slips out of the room. She needs to change into some warmer clothes. We'll return to the pod play, Last Flag on Oak Island, in 60 seconds. We now return to the pod play entitled Last Flag on Oak Island. At dusk, the second wind pulls away from the lighthouse dock with Lauren and Maruso on board. Lauren stands at the boat rear watching the island as the sun sets. Maruso looks on as he steers the boat. She pulls her jacket tighter. He's there. Do you know who? No, but I'm sure someone is. Probably Miles. Lucy may have someone watching too. You cold? No, summer just goes down fast out here. And it's always colder seaside. I'm sorry to change your plans tonight. This whole charade thing just kind of threw me. I don't mind. Actually, this is a good time for you and Dr. Sheldon to come up. We got holidays coming up. Canada Day. Lots of Scottish events. What kind of time frame did Rudy give you? I'm hired for one month with an unchallenged bid on another 60 days. I had to drop my full-time first mate, but by law, I gotta have one to go out of the bay. I thought you knew more about this gig. I can't call you Maruso or Captain. Lewis, long as we're being frank, I got a few questions too. First, what kind of food do you like? Oh, there's something on the horizon can't see what it is, but I'm trying. Something tender in the wind, it's got every flag flying. Yeah, there's something on the horizon. 
Those eyes are like an ocean I could swim in all day And that touch is like a north star Taking me too far away And there's something on the horizon I can't see what it is But I'm trying Something tender in the wind It's got every flag fly There's something on the horizon that evening, Lauren is back in her quaint bedroom at the cottage, looking out the window at the beautiful stars. As she starts to pull the shade for the night, she pauses. Out in the dark, she can see headlights amid the trees going toward Clemens. Curious, she watches for a moment, then pulls the shades and climbs under the pile of quilts on her bed and drifts off to sleep. It's been a long day of study and sea air and mystery. Across the island, we find the Yearbright operation, Borehole 11C. The office is similar to Clemens' operation, but tidier and is over the original money pit site. Two armed guards are keeping watch. A light is on in the office trailer and the phone is ringing. In the office, cluttered with maps are two desks, two computers, charts, graphs, and maps on the walls. Lucy Yearbright, 42, all business, with her straight blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail beneath her hard hat, is on the phone. Her head engineer is standing close by with his hands resting on the edge of her desk. Yes, as soon as... I'd like to do it sooner. That'll have to do. She hangs up the phone and smiles wryly. We got it. He nods and grins. The next morning, Lauren and Carlos are walking along Smith's Cove, looking out over the inlet of water. This could have more to do with the find than the pit itself. The fake cove created to keep the pit flooded via man-made tunnels. Uh, I don't know, Carlos. If there was anything here, it would have been found by now. And operations have already dug up the whole area several times. They've done the same thing to the pit and never found anything either. 
The tunnel that kept the original pit flooded gulched out here. If there was anything of monetary value buried in the pit, it would have been found by now. Brielle couldn't have buried it there. How would he get it out unless there was another safer way in? Now, if this flood tunnel could be shut off, they could walk it up to the pit. Perhaps not. It'd be difficult to get a chest through a slot as narrow as the flood tunnel. It's a big undertaking to pull off without being seen, but no one would have thought it odd to see a British ship hanging around. But an operation the size it'd take for the pit would attract attention and the workers themselves. Now, the year is 1776. The Lady Grey is at sea on the Atlantic Ocean. She's a beautiful British naval ship. Her tall sails and solid wooden hull are laden down with 120 men, among other things. Admiral Claude Brielle, 42, also British, stands midship, watching. The Grey's crew are going about their morning duties. Some mend rope, some polish hardware, a few are looking southwest toward the colonies of the early U.S. They are trying to catch sight of the mainland. However, two of the Gray's crew look suspiciously at Brielle. How would you go about conducting a large-scale excavation without explaining it to a ship's crew who knew they were sailing for the colonies? How do you convince them to sail over a hundred miles past Cooperate in a dig and then keep quiet about it. If only one man and a crew talked, Brielle's secret was out. A few more of the crew look to the southwest, then to Brielle. Brielle gives them a stiff look in return. The crew break eye contact and quickly move to go about their duties. Stuart, a young British engineer, comes up from the companionway and sees Brielle. It would be simple to let Stuart be killed in the privateer attack Brielle said happened. Any crew who wouldn't cooperate could be lost that way too. Growing more suspicious, a few of the Grey's crew glance at Stuart, who walks across the deck to Brielle. I mean, he could have promised the loyal one a cut of the payroll when he went back, or maybe kept them drunk, or maybe they died of disease. Several of the Grey's crew, fiercely loyal to Brielle, look up from their work to him. The reason? Stuart seems to be talking a little too intensely to their boss. It need only a small crew to manage the ship. Slipping back to 1995, Carlos and Lauren walk to a small dock nearby and sit down. Carlos, why did we come here? Why not just have the journal sent to the museum for tests? Brielle vanished for the last time in 1781 long before the inscribed stone was found at the 90-foot mark in the pit. But his journal uses the same code. Personally, I don't think it's there, but there's gonna be a lot of preliminary legwork. You and the captain can do that discreetly. Quietly is the only way to explore something as overexposed as this money pit. Well, the 200th anniversary is gonna draw lots of attention. It'll give you a good excuse to ask questions without being too obvious. And we better be quick. Strolling home to the cottage, Carlos and Lauren have a lot to think about. The mystery grows as the ghost of the Lady Grey and the present-day fishing and tour boats out on the water fade into the sparkling sunset for now. Later that night, back at their little cottage headquarters, Lauren, lost in thought, is carrying notes and research books. She sets these on her bed and finds her sleepwear. She pulls down the window shade, but not before she pauses, looking out, searchingly. Then, out of the window, a glint of light in the trees, twice. Lauren tosses her sleepwear on the bed and heads downstairs out the front door. From the cottage, Lauren makes her way up the treed slope. A white pickup with a large rear bumper comes into view. Miles sits on the lowered tailgate watching the cottage with binoculars. Lauren nears the truck from the front, unseen. Hey, what are you doing out here? Startled, Miles lowers the binoculars and hops off the tailgate. Oh, Lauren, wh what are you doing here? I asked you first. I wanted to see if Maruso came by. This is a long way to come just to see an ex-boyfriend. 
Well, we kind of fell out of touch, but I knew we worked the island and Rudy said I should come up with dad. Said Lewis asked about me. Guess I kind of wanted to see him too. Oh, you wanted to see him? I thought it was the other way around. Well, he didn't seem to mind me coming with dad and I'll have to back out of lunch Saturday. So do you have any plans for Canada Day? We kind of left it open. He moves to the side of the pickup near her. Too close, she steps back. You'll let me know if the holiday is off between you and Lewis, right? Sure. Lauren turns and heads back down the slope to the cottage. More than a little nervous, she doesn't waste any time getting home and behind a locked door. She checks it twice. Up in her cozy bed, she worries herself into a fitful sleep. The next morning, Carlos and Lauren are back at the kitchen table, busily working on the journal and their notes. Rudy, after a warm and chatty breakfast with his friends, is dozing in a cushy old armchair nearby. If Saul Clemens wants Miles to see you again, Miles will have to try. And if you won't see him, Saul may find another way to find out if we're really here for a visit. If I see Miles and Lewis, no one will take me serious. He nods and turns a journal page. A widened X spreads across the parchment in lighter ink. Lauren sees this and can't believe her eyes. <laughs> Don't tell me there's really an X marking the spot. Not quite. The afternoon finds the second wind bobbing up and down in the Mahone Bay water within sight of Oak Island. Lauren and Maruso sit on deck chairs as she skims her notes and newspaper articles. It's all going to be public knowledge. Won't be anything about Brielle. This reporter, Newport, wrote a lot on the pit in 1973 and 74. Yeah, I remember him. You remember him from 1974, Lewis? I was in grammar school, and we read the articles in class. When nothing new was happening, he'd rehash earlier digs, early as the 1840s. He writes the pod auger hit wood. We slide back in time to 1849, to Oak Island and the Truro Company excavation of the money pit and its auger-type drilling. Six Truro workmen surround the modest borehole as the auger pod drops a foot into the hole, then drops another foot, spinning all the while. The workmen grin. There's lots of excited shoulder slapping. Dropped through empty space, rattled through 18 inches of loose metal, through wood again. The workmen nod, watching the drill drop again into the ground. More space, loose metal, and wood again before halting in dirt. The find of the century is at hand. Someone wrote that line every week. That was the Truro dig. Pit flooded out. William Chapel found something like that in 1897, but it's been lost ever since. The workmen step back from the borehole. The drill stops, then slowly raises the auger from the hole. The men inspect the bit. A few rub fingers on the auger pitches, nod congratulate each other. All are certain of success. We flash back to present day. It's a glorious day out on the water, perfect sailing weather, and we find Lauren and Maruso still sitting in their deck chairs on the second wind. Backers don't back without hope. Financiers want tangible proof they can wrap their fingers around. Besides, treasure hunters have to dance around the treasure trove rights with the government. Carlos said any treasure buried in the pit would have been found by now. Or washed out to sea when the pit collapsed in 1861. Well, maybe it was designed to lead away from a real treasure buried elsewhere. Oh, like the Swiss bank idea? I mean, that would be one way to do it. Even pirates did. It wasn't very complex. She sketches on a piece of paper the side view of an underground Swiss bank concept with one shaft and three offshoot tunnels angling up. <laughs> Miles convinced you it was pirates? Is it Blackbeard or Kid this week? Finishing up the sketch, Lauren turns the paper for him to see. The pit is too well structured to be the work of 17th century pirates, Lewis, but Swiss banks have been found in Haiti and Madagascar. By unconfirmed sources. 
She folds the other papers, puts them and the sketch in her beach bag nearby. Maruso grabs a couple of cold drinks from a cooler. He offers one to Lauren. You old enough for this? You're not robbing a cradle. Okay, what's your theory, Captain? You've read the theories. Every twig on this island has been linked to a theory at some time. They say the Triangle of Stones, one operation found on the island, was a sort of marker, not for the pit, but for a scout party. People trying to escape persecution don't leave highly visible markers, just something only they can find. Then you got that kid map. She sifts through her bag, brings out an article with the Kid Palmer WK-1669 treasure map and skims over it. The antique dealer's map in the late 1690s? Follow me to the Caribbean Sea. It's 1698. We are out on the water with the privateer Captain Kidd. Kidd is storming up and down the deck of his ship, the infamous Adventure Galley. As his outlaw crew engages a Moorish ship, the Kadam merchant in a ferocious cannon battle. Kidd captured the Moorish Kadam merchant in the Caribbean. Kidd wins. As they celebrate, Captain Kidd's crew bring up a few bulging chests, part of the Kadam merchant's pricey cargo. Over 90,000 pounds sterling was removed by Kidd, none of which was ever handed over to the British crown. Ah, but this is where the real mystery begins. We flash back, 1720, Boston, Massachusetts, in a second-story room of a rundown hotel. A former pirate, ragged, toothless, and poor, lays dying in his bed. Beside him, the hotel owner, a stern woman, watches him with disinterest. She feels nothing. He owes her money, but her 13-year-old son can't pry himself away from the room and this once fierce pirate. Fading fast, the old outlaw gasps, wheezes, and makes a gesture for the son to lean closer to his bedside. The boy does. Then, the pirate whispers something faintly in his ear. In the early 18th century, a dying sailor in New England confessed to being part of Kidd's crew on the San Antonio. He claimed he helped Kidd bury two million pounds sterling on an uncharted island east of Boston. The boy's eyes grow wide in disbelief as the former pirate whispers an old, old secret to him. The woman listens in too, in spite of herself and what she hears shocks her, but leaves her old jaded self a little more than suspicious. The story was picked up by major coastal newspapers. In the 1930s, when a map with W-K-1669 surfaced in a Boston antique dealer's shop. Now it's 1929, in a dusty, forgotten old antique shop in Boston, Massachusetts, the owners Two brothers spread a map on the back counter. They study every detail and can't help but smile hopefully at the inscription WK-1669. They've got it. The legendary Kid Treasure Map. This has been the Podplay Last Flag on Oak Island. Adapted from the screenplay, written by J.R. Jordan Vanes. If you've enjoyed the new and original music you've heard in this pod play, you can stream or download these songs anywhere, anytime, from wherever you get your music. Or simply visit podplays.com for the songs, more pod plays containing more original music, and entertaining bonus content. Search for the free pod plays app in the App Store now.
Hey, I just wanted to take a quick second and tell you that if you want to be a fly on the wall in conversations you probably wouldn't be able to listen to otherwise, you really need to subscribe to the Marty Ray Project Chats podcast. Marty Ray and Chris Wallen chat with some of the most interesting people in entertainment, from Burt Kreischer and Vanilla to Faison Love, DDP, Dina Carter, Herb Dean. They chat with some really interesting people. This show is like potato chips. I guarantee you, you can't just listen to one. Subscribe, download, rate, and review the Marty Ray Project Chats wherever podcasts are heard. Great stories, epic songs. <laughs> Podplays. If you enjoy the new and original music you discover in Podplays, be sure to stream or download these songs anywhere you currently get your music. Simply search the artist name Podplays, and please remember to like, follow, and share with all your friends.